The day I was leaving Paris for Berlin, I missed my flight at Airport Orly. There were no other flights available on the same airline that day, but I was eager to start my new life in Germany, and I have a good low-cost airfare app. So I found another flight leaving two hours later, only from Airport Charles de Gaulle, clear on the other side of the City of Light, which I guess would make it the dark side? No matter, I had just enough time. I retraced my steps through the airport back to the trains that could get me across town in about an hour. And on my way, as I was passing by the main terminal's giant floor-to-ceiling windows, I happened to glance outside. There, at the curb at arrivals, I spotted a bright yellow taxi. Yes, said my brain. A taxi is always a good idea. Can you get me to Airport Charles de Gaulle in time for an 11 a.m. flight? I asked the driver. Of course he could. I jumped in, closed the door, and then it started to rain. As we pulled onto the Périphérique, the ring road that circles Paris, the road was clear for about 10 minutes. Then the traffic started to get thick. My taxi driver glanced at his dashboard clock and shook his head. Ce n'est pas possible, he said. It's not going to be possible. But we keep going, by fits and by starts, inch by inch. Ce n'est pas possible, he says. There's an accident up ahead. Ce n'est pas possible. The rain comes down harder. Ce n'est pas possible. He keeps up this litany about every minute on the minute for the next 10 kilometers. C'est pas possible, c'est pas possible, c'est pas possible. After about 20 minutes of listening to this, I did something that, in the six years I lived in Paris, I swore I would never do. Monsieur, I said. All the French ever say is, c'est pas possible, c'est pas possible, mais moi, je me suis américaine. Pour nous, tout sont possible. That's right, I played the American card, which is obnoxious and tacky. But you know, after hearing it's not possible again and again, I cracked. Monsieur, I'm American. For us, everything is possible. Welcome to Artipus, art you can hear. Artipus visits Letitia Gendre's This Is Not Versailles at the Gallery Thomas Fischer in Berlin. And it's true, you know, in America, everything is possible. We can be anything, do anything, build anything. We can turn dreams into reality, fiction into facts, and anyone can be president unless you're a woman.
1977, a judge in Albuquerque, New Mexico, was reading the funny pages one day and became fascinated with the latest installment of Spider-Man. One of Spidey's nemeses, Kingpin, had slapped an electronic bracelet on his wrist to monitor his movements, telling the web-slinger, Now we'll always know where you are, Spider-Man. While anyone else reading the paper that morning saw science fiction, Judge Jack Love saw potential. A monitoring device, an electronic tether, would allow minor offense criminals to live under house arrest to live at home, which would help integrate them into their communities by allowing them to be with their families, to go to work, and to reduce overcrowding and subhuman conditions in the prison system. So while everyone else reading the funny pages that morning simply moved on to Hagar the Horrible and Blondie, Love started making phone calls, and the electric monitoring device, the ankle monitor, was born. All thanks to your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. Letitia Jeanjma's installation, This Is Not Versailles, at the Gallery Thomas Fisher, is all about the ankle monitor, which, as a concept alone, is kind of great, because who makes art about house arrest? When I first saw press for this exhibit, I thought it was referring to the palace at Versailles, which was kind of a prison in itself. A spacious, lush prison, but still a prison. For the entire royal family, their entourage of courtiers and nobles, and for the people who worked in the palace of Versailles as well. But there is also a woman's prison in the town of Versailles, opened first in 1750 and still operating today. This is the Versailles genre is referring to, but the installation itself references both places, partly by happy accident. The gallery at Thomas Fisher is housed in a building from the late 18th or early 19th centuries. In the gallery, the original floor has been exposed. Parquet and inlay curlicues swirl around the room like a faded ballroom, as if the brittle old wood has been saturated with grandeur and splendor to the point of rot. To walk into the gallery, Thomas Fisher, is to walk straight into Letitia Gendre's installation itself. You are immediately immersed. In the first gallery, the walls are painted an intense Eve Klein blue. It's such a deep and rich blue, like... Like... Wow, while I was putting together this episode, I realized how hard it is to describe this color. It's not the blue of anyone's eyes, or the sea, or the sky. It's the blue of the paper the Paris Metro system uses to fill the poster frames when there's no advertising. It's the blue of your computer screen when there are no desk savers. It's a man-made blue, a blue intense and alive. It's electric. There is also a video monitor in the first gallery with a lovely video of ocean waves lapping and crashing against a rocky shore. But put on the headphones and a blue rectangle grows on the screen, although it doesn't completely obliterate the calming ocean. The ocean teases around the edges. You can just see it. You can hear it in the background. So you know it's there, but you just can't reach it. That wattage of blue electricity is in your way. It stops you from actually getting there. On the headphones are the stories, and it's important to listen to them, if only to put the rest of the installation in context. Stories of offenders who are under house arrest, equipped with the ankle monitor, and how they're coping with it. There is the single mother serving a sentence for assaulting her ex-partner. Her life shrunk to her tiny apartment thanks to the limited range of the ankle monitor. There is the official who is now a prisoner. 
finding freedom in her garden at night where she paints nocturnal birds. There is the young woman who moved into her own apartment to serve her sentence in order to spare her parents the embarrassment of the ankle monitor, and she finds a different kind of independence living on her own, even though restricted. There is the young man who chafes against the ankle bracelet so much, he finally cuts it off with a pair of scissors from Ikea. The stories are simple. The crimes are the everyday crimes of life. The crimes of living under the pressure of poverty and sexism and racism and the stresses of the modern world. People crack sometimes, and all of these people have cracked a little bit. Each of them, at different stages of wearing the ankle monitor, have adapted their lives around it, some grateful for the restriction, some straining against it, yearning to be free. Their stories intersect a little bit in that classic storytelling Indira's web trope where the world isn't so big after all and we're all somehow connected. They all bend and break to varying degrees and they all want, as their first act of freedom from the ankle bracelet, to visit the sea. So the installation brings the stories to life, or at least brings the settings to life. You insert yourself as the main character. You are the offender who paints nocturnal birds. There are your paintings on the wall. You are the offender who cut off your bracelet with a pair of Ikea scissors. There's your journal entry. It's like walking through a storybook, which warms my storytelling heart. But it's also bringing the fiction to life, in much the same way Judge Jack Love brought the ankle monitor to life out of that comic. In the first gallery, an outline of a living space fills the room. The floor, the faded floor of the Palace of Versailles. All that rotting splendor, meaningless in this tiny concept of a space. A door, a window, an outline all in white. Two-dimensional like theater sets. So you can see the pine frames they're suspended on. The way they're braced up against the floor. False fronts, in a way. As flimsy but as real as the GPS tether of the ankle monitor. Don't you wonder sometimes Chandra's simple conceptual rooms also remind me of the minimal sets from the Lars von Trier's film, Dogville, another story of a prisoner, although only of her own beliefs. There have been plenty of movies made about house arrest, of course, the most famous being Alfred Hitchcock's 1954 thriller Rear Window, with Jimmy Stewart imprisoned at home by his broken leg, with nothing better to do than spy on his neighbors and witness a murder. Or the updated version starring Shia LaBeouf, 2007's Disturbia, about a teenager sentenced to house arrest, restricted by his ankle monitor, who has nothing better to do than spy on his neighbors and discover one of them is a serial killer. But these movies were less about physical imprisonment than cautionary tales based on the fable The Boy Who Cried Wolf. When you believe everything, everyone gets arrested. In revolutionary France, it was called the terroir. In 1950s America, it was called McCarthyism. Fascist regimes are the best places to cry wolf. Everyone's on a tether. Your neighbors are your tracking device. These days, everything has become a tracking device. CCTV cameras, our smartphones, our laptops, even our TVs. Electronics corporation Samsung just released a statement warning its customers to not hold private or intimate conversations in front of their new Samsung TVs, even when turned off. Which is bizarre in itself, because they're the ones that built the damn things. Why not just not include the technology? Why is it so integrated into everything else that we can't have one without the other, where instead of technology adapting to our lives, we are now adapting to it? 
It's straight out of George Orwell's 1984. Which is how ankle monitoring devices work. The wearer adapts to the technology. Go outside the prescribed geographical area, the alarm goes off. Get back after curfew, the alarm goes off. Suddenly, your world has been shrunk to these places in these times. Prison without the walls and bad company. But what is prison really for? Jail, the purpose of prison, is to remove dangerous and disruptive elements from society so that society can continue to function productively and peacefully. Why should an entire society adapt around one person who doesn't get it? Jail is not so much to withhold society from offenders, it's to force compliance. And if you don't want to comply, you go underground, like people who don't want to be tracked by phones and TVs and computers. The people who don't use smartphones, who reroute their IP addresses and spend minimal time on the internet. They don't live off the grid so much as on the edges of it, becoming prisoners of their own conspiracy theories, never leaving their own plot of land, trapped at home and monitoring the monitors. The middle room of the gallery space is taken up by a huge print on vinyl of the suburban home, or view from the suburban home, of one of the offenders. It stretches across the room and while the image printed on the vinyl canvas is in black and white, slightly blurred as the leaves from the trees stirred in a breeze you can almost feel, the building's quiet and white and familiar. It's less a dreamscape than a soothing photo of someplace familiar and comforting. Step through it and tacked along the wall in the way children's drawings are tacked up in schoolrooms are pages of paintings and drawings illustrating the offender's stories, ranging from literal to representational. I have to confess, even though I see the reason for displaying the work in this way, it gets under my skin. I hate stuff pinned to the wall instead of hung in a frame or displayed in some way that is more solid, more permanent. These pages blow about in the slightest breeze of someone walking by, the unpinned bottoms of the paper curling up, away from the wall. It gives me a feeling of haste and desperation or even despair, of giving up, of this will do. It's as temporary but as solid as the ankle bracelet itself, and like the ankle bracelet, it chafes. In the final room, the space is completely white and bare. The only thing in this space, besides a door set into the wall, logic says it leads to the offices of the gallery, but my imagination says it leads to freedom through secret passages and possibly tunnels through a complex sewer system because my imagination is written by Victor Hugo. The only other thing in here are copies of the Albuquerque newspaper featuring the Spider-Man comic that inspired Judge Jack Love, and the front page featuring Love himself wearing the prototype ankle monitor. The artist has hand-copied the funny pages and the front page, including hand-lettering the article. Just in the love for this type of art, I really love this, and I love that she's left everything but the points of focus fuzzy and almost faded out. On the funny pages, only the Spider-Man comic is clear. On the front page, only the headline article and 
one photo featuring Judge Jack Love. It's all that's important anyway, at least for this installation. The rest of the news on those days is irrelevant. We could almost say, in relation to this particular reality, fake. With these two works, Jandra has effectively reversed everything, fictionalized the newspaper by making a copy of it, reproducing only the parts she finds relevant and smudging out the rest, kind of like how we tend to perceive reality anyway. And by the act of copying it, she simultaneously turns it into art, as well as challenges the original, sending the fact back into fiction from whence it came. The Palace of Versailles is also a fiction brought to life like the fake farm where Marie Antoinette could play milkmaid. But this fiction was also a prison, the palace itself a symbol of absolute monarchy that by the time of Marie Antoinette, the royalty were so hated they couldn't leave Versailles. And it was a prison for the nobility, who spent months at a time at the palace on the fiction of an invitation, when in reality, they were required to spend time in that beautiful white-collar prison on pain of being stripped of their rank and lands. And when the fiction of absolute monarchy became saturated to the point of rot, the peasants in their rage were finally subdued with a fiction as well, since the revolution didn't really change anything at all except to create a middle class, the bourgeoisie, and to give every man from pauper to prince the illusion that he had the same droit de cuissage as landed gentry. But the poor still eat the same crappy bread, still live outside the peripherique of Paris, still riot and burn things and even in their frustration, kill. Because in the end, the fiction never replaces the very real facts and pressures, the prison of poverty, of racism, of the stresses of modern life. I will sit right down, waiting for the gift of sound and vision. After I yelled at my taxi driver, he stopped repeating C'est pas possible out loud. But in true French fashion, he simply continued to mutter C'est pas possible under his breath for the rest of the drive to the airport. Vive la résistance. Letitia Gendre's installation, This Is Not Versailles, is ultimately about bringing fiction to life. But why is it only the terrible things that are ever brought into reality? Why is it always a Spider-Man comic, or Orwell's 1984, or The Matrix? Why is it never the beautiful things? Don't you wonder sometimes vision This Is Not Versailles is on view until April 13th at the Gallery Thomas Fischer, located at Potsdamer Straße 77-87, House H in Berlin. Find artists and exhibits in your city and everywhere you go with Glarify, the world's first art map app the interactive global mapping tool that lets you locate artist studios, openings, and exhibits in your town and around the world. Become part of your local art scene. It's free. Glarify is an official partner of Artipus. Visit Glarify.com. Artipus is a proud supporter of Prana, the platform for the homeless. Prana is a digital platform bridging the information gap between volunteers, 
organizations, and the homeless, providing direct connections to real-time information about food, shelter, clothing, medical help, and more. Help the homeless by helping Prana grow. Visit Prana at www.prana-deutschland.de. Artipus is written and produced in Berlin by Susie Kollek and broadcast on World Radio Paris in France, Indie Republic in Germany, and in the U.S. on 89.3 FM Chaos Community Radio. You can also stream us on SoundCloud or download us on iTunes. Just search for Artipus, A-R-T-I-P-O-E-U-S. And you can see photos and read transcripts of this episode and more at artipus.com. That's all for Artipus this week. I'm Susie Kollek. See you around town.